Welcome to Forward, the podcast where we introduce you to the humanities at Brock University. I'm your host, Alice Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. This series, we're focusing on current and recent graduate students from our MA and PhD programs. I first met today's guest last spring when I interviewed her for Brock News Story on receiving the Spirit of Brock Medal for the Faculty of Humanities, and I knew then that we must have her come back for an episode of Forward. So I'm very pleased to introduce Carolyn Fast, a recent graduate from our History MA program. Between 1876 and 2009, more than 50,000 people with intellectual disabilities were housed in institutions across Ontario. Carolyn saw the impact of institutionalization and the ideologies behind it in her work in the disability sector. So her MA research centered on the stories of people who experienced institutionalization and explored the continuing impact of this lesser known aspect of Ontario history. She brought her passion working for people with disabilities to her research, looking at humanness within the context of the deinstitutionalization movement in Ontario for her thesis titled The Unmaking of Difference, The Winding Road of Deinstitutionalization in Ontario, 1960-2018. And you can read that work in Brock's digital repository. I'll put a link in our show footnotes for you. Carolyn has worked in the disability sector with organizations such as People First Ontario, Partners for Planning, and Community Living. In March 2019, she launched her own business, working directly with individuals to help set goals and make plans, while also consulting for various organizations. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, what brought you to Brock to do an MA in History? Mm. Well, the short answer is that I live in Niagara, and the longer answer is that I started my undergrad part-time um, at Brock in 2007. So shortly after that, I was a sole provider for my kids, so I was working full-time, taking care of them, chipping away at a degree, and I graduated finally in 2014 with a, with a Bachelor of Arts uh, major in history, and I remember thinking so clearly, I am never going back. Like, I'm so done school. I just want to read for pleasure. Like, that was in my head. Um, but, you know, there's some great professors in the history department, and one of them being Dr. Selhaney. And, um, you know, she's brilliant, but she's also a little sneaky because she said, I want you in your fourth year to just sit in on a master's course because I think you're just going to, one of the classes, you're just going to love the conversation. Um, and then when I graduated, she looked at me and said, well, I look forward to working with you again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, in 2017, I was knocking on her office door saying that, you know, I think I have an idea for an MA because I knew if I came back, it had to, it had to like mean something, you know, it, it, there had to be a purpose for me coming back. And, and so she said, well, it's a big idea. And I think you should go the thesis route to really you know, give it the time and attention that it deserved. And so, um, you know, so I was back, I was back at Brock, but I have to say, like, I love the smaller department, uh, you know, the professors have an open door policy and as a mature student feeling like a fish out of water sometimes, uh, that was, that was really welcoming. So that, that must've been quite challenging at times, both in your undergrad degree and definitely, definitely in your graduate degree, where you're, um, caring for your family and, and, layering on all this extra academic work um, in addition to your your regular work and whatnot as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, um, well, my friends, my close friends um, read my essays as we went through each one and, and checked off the calendar as to how many more years were left. So <laughs> <laughs> kudos to them and to my kids for putting up with it. With it. So what brought you then to this specific subject? I did mention in the intro that you had worked in the disability sector, but I'm sure there's lots of different disability-related history topics that you could have looked at. So why, why this particular one? Yeah, and you know what? That really stems back to my work in the community. I got involved in my community, and that led to me working with organizations that really focus on social justice issues. So whether that was homelessness, domestic violence, poverty, um, addictions. And so 
I was working in the community, had been for a while, and and a colleague of mine approached me, and unbeknownst to me, he would later become my husband, but he approached to me and said, uh, you know, there's this little coordinator position for people first, why don't you apply for it? And so I did. And for those people who aren't familiar with People First Ontario, they're um, a provincial body, part of an international organization composed of self-advocates with lived experience. And really, they were critical in shutting down institutions that house people with an intellectual disability. So um, I got to work on a national project that focused on identifying obstacles to participation and community involvement for people with a disability, particularly an intellectual impairment. And meeting my boss, Richard Rustin, who later became my mentor and my friend, that changed the trajectory of my life, really, and my work. Um, Richard, you know, I, I just have to say a little bit about him because it's so important. He He's a soft-spoken, gentle man, but very intimidating. And I wasn't sure if at first he even liked me or if I could win him over. Uh, but, you know, he was a, a straight shooter and and he had this wealth of experience. You know, he'd, he'd been mentored by the original founders of the provincial chapter, Pat Worth and Peter Park. And Peter Park's known as the godfather of, of People First and, and they are survivors of institutions. And Richard himself had spoken at the United Nations. So, you know, he had this vast scope of experience and, and activity as an, as an advocate for people. And, um, you know, he really strongly believed in people's right to have real work, to own their own home, to have a home of their choosing, their right to have the, the life they wanted and the people that they wanted in it, you know, the right to marry and love who you want to love, uh, and the right to self-determination. And, you know, Richard himself had experience with confinement. You know, he told me later on as a young person, he was removed from his family and forced into a group a group home and, and you know, the implications and the impact on that you know, having a home of his own and owning his own condo as an adult, that, you know, was super important to him. And and as you look back on his life, you could see why. So it was the relationships I formed with people in uh, the People First Movement, friendships, real genuine friendships. And I would see how people who were doing extraordinary things had the extraordinary experiences and accomplishments in their life were still being challenged to prove their competency and their capacity, you know, and largely by people that they themselves employed to provide them support, you know? And so that's, that's what brought me to this. This is um, a side of Ontario history that, that people might not be very familiar with. Um, And I've probably mentioned on the podcast before that um, I grew up outside of Woodstock and I remember driving past on a regular basis, driving past this sprawling site um, that was a massive institution for people with, with disabilities. So, so I, I have a little bit of that memory as, um, as, as a child, but I suppose unless maybe you grew up in communities with, with these centers or grew up knowing somebody actively involved, um, our listeners might not be as familiar with, with them. So do, uh, can you give us a little bit of a background? Yeah, it's not something that I would even have been aware of. And I grew up in Manitoba and there's still a really large institution that exists in Portage right now that they're fighting to close through class, class action suits, right? So it's it it exists in the shadows of Canadian history, and I think unless you have a relationship with someone who was a family member of someone who was placed in the institution, or you have a relationship with a person who was in, in an institution, or you worked in an institution, you know a lot of the institutions, like you said, were located in smaller places like Smith Falls and um, you know Aurelia, and uh, so unless you have that kind of connection it's not something that you're told it's not something that we're taught about in history in high school you know and even um history related to disability even now in in universities and so on it's it's not you know I think it's gaining some traction as to why we need to learn about it and it's very meaningful and it's got lots of implications um but it's it's largely something that's very quiet and exists in the shadows 
So, so how did this practice of institutionalizing people with disabilities um, kind of how and why did did it arise? Yeah, you know, my research really was focused on unraveling this notion of difference and and looking at that from the legal, medical, social, and administrative responses to it. But it was also a very humble stab at intellectual history too. So looking at how do we see people and what makes people human. Um, And historically speaking, the ways that society, specifically Ontario, responded to difference, particularly differences represented by an intellectual impairment, um, really hasn't changed that much since the mid-19th century. Segregation, congregation, confinement, they continue to be a a go-to, a persistent solution. But at the core of that, my argument was that I believe that's informed by our beliefs about what makes us human. So you know, when did we start to justify difference as a, may, as, a, as a means of confining people? And so to your question, you know, in a really broad brush response, um, there were some things that were going on in different periods of time that I think are significant when we look to understand how this happened, why it was happening. And, and institutionalization of people in Canada particularly was was blurred by madness. So intellectual impairment, people that had an intellectual impairment and people that were considered to be mad, they were kind of lumped together, right? Um, And so the earliest mention of confinement that I'm aware of would be in 1639 and Quebec became the first province to build a hospital to provide treatment and care. Um, and And I quote, for the indigent crippled and idiots, right? And so those were characterized, those people who were characterized as such you know, they were seen as a threat to greater society and possibly a threat to themselves. If we look at the 1700s, there's rising notions of nationhood, you know, and what that means. Uh, Jason Haslam and Julia Wright in their book, Captivating Subjects, you know, they point to sovereignty and self-development as important components of a nation. And that meant that certain people could be excluded from citizenship who posed a threat to that, right, or who didn't measure up. The 1800s and the 1900s, Normalcy is getting stricter definitions as to what that actually means. And then I think you throw in the Industrial Revolution, and that brings new markers for workers into the work world as to what that looks like. And and people are moving from urban um, communities into cities, and that's transforming the work world as well. And I think that there's a loss of, of valued societal roles that perhaps people with an impairment filled quite naturally before, you know, kind of that disruption. We've got immigration, and that also was seen as a threat sometimes to preserving the nation. And And there's also thoughts about how difference is displayed in human bodies and race, and Erica Charters, you know, kind of touches on that. So with physicians also playing a bigger role when we're looking at illness and causation and disease and plagues and their expertise is growing, you know, what causes these illness oftentimes Vulnerable people were seen as the cause of it. Uh, And, you know, and by the 1880s, the lay of the land is really fertile for eugenics. And that was a policy that was widely accepted by industrialized nations. But to bring us back to Ontario, in 1835, a critical thing that happened was that three doctors in Ontario were selected to form a committee to address what was considered a problem in the province of, and I quote, lunatics and idiots. And not long after that, policy started to emerge pretty quickly where it became very commonplace to sanction the building of institutions to confine people that were undesirable. And I think it's really important to note that from its inception, institutions in Ontario were overcrowded, they were understaffed, and inmates existed in deplorable conditions where abuse and mistreatment ran rampant. And that really did not change from the beginning to when we finally closed institutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what's also interesting to note is that in the 1970s, historians Ivan Brown and John Radford, they noted that as the peak of the asylum era. And when you think about that, to me, that wasn't that long ago. Uh, But, you know, there were 20 institutions in Ontario, and that was almost half of the number of institutions that existed across Canada. And in those institutions at that time, they house more than 10,000 children and adults. So I think we have to remember that children, babies were in the mix of this, right? What what age then were were people taken from their families um, and their parents? Well, 
sometimes from birth. Um, you know, there's a story in my uh, from one of the family members who they talk about their their mom, who um, they were really excited. You know, mom was going to have a baby, and and mom came home, and the baby wasn't there, and there was no explanation as to where the baby had gone. Um, and you know, it turned out that they found out as they got older that you know their baby sister had been born with Down syndrome. And that there were some nurses in the family that, you know, at the time worked for what later is known as Sick Kids Hospital. And upon their recommendation and the doctor's recommendation that this child should not go home and should be put in an institution where she'd, you know, under the guise of and maybe the intention of getting treatment and care and you know, it's a, it was a story that haunted me because the sister recalled her mom, you know, sharing bits and pieces of this over the years, like decades and decades. And, and she, you know, she, her mom had said that um, she dressed her little girl, her little baby. She had given 24 hours to decide if she, um, what she was going to do. Couldn't even see the child. The child was taken from her and she had 24 hours. And then um, she dressed her and uh, said to her, something to the effect of, you know, I'll see you again. And, you know, those girls, until they were in their, the sisters and the siblings, until they were like 11 and older, uh, didn't know that they really had a, a sibling, you know, were exposed to her later on on a trip back from Expo where they stopped at the institution. And it was just traumatic and shocking um, for everyone, you know, to see, to have this realization and then to see how their sister was, um, being treated and where she was living and what that looked like. So then the families didn't necessarily, like, were, like, were they able to maintain relationships? Were they discouraged from that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a situational thing case by case too with families, right? There were many families that um, survivors um, and siblings that I interviewed that, their families would go regularly and visit, or they would bring their loved one home for periods of time. Um, other families, you know, there was this notion of shame and fear. And so sometimes families, Jeff, uh, Professor Rayum, who's a, an asylum survivor, and um, he writes a lot about the impact of families that institutionalization had on the impact, the impact of families. And, you know, sometimes people, family members would write their loved ones and they wouldn't even want to put their return address on it because they wouldn't want to be associated for fear of what that might mean and the stigma that might come their way. So, you know, I think it was really dependent on the circumstance. Also the institutions, as you mentioned, you drove by one, you know, where you lived, they were often placed outside of communities on, you know, big parcels of land. And so for some families to have to drive and to get there in and of itself would have been an obstacle. So that would have limited their interaction, you know, and, and in the beginning, some families thought and that they could use it as respite, right. As that little bit of support where they could put their son or daughter there and then get them out. And initially that, worked but as time went on if people were sent to the institution of children or adults or young people um once they were there they were there and it was very very difficult to get them out now you did mention to me um that as part of your research you interviewed survivors about their about their experiences and i was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about some of some of the stories that that people shared with you Right. Well, yes. And the context of that being that, you know, when I went into this research, I knew that it was a terrible situation for people. I knew that the abuse was haunting and chilling and heartbreaking and horrifying. And I, and I really didn't want to, I didn't want to sit in that, although I knew it needed to be communicated. And so in interviewing the survivors, we really, I really focused on them as people, you know, the parts of their lives that they wanted to share that demonstrated, you know, their personhood. Um, and so they shared stories from their personal life, um, you know, after what life looked like for them. Right. And so many people had employment and bought cars and were able to work towards having their own place to live and, and got married and uh, became aunts and uncles and got connected with their family members. And, and so uh, in sharing some of their stories, 
you know, those are the pieces of their lives that they wanted remembered for and thought about just like any, any one of us. Right. Um, but there is one story in particular that was uh, funny. It was a lot of fun and it was a, a couple that I knew and, and we'll call him Selby. Um, that's, that's the name that we've given to him. But, um, you know, I asked him about being happy and feeling happy. And he said, I smile every day. And I said, you know, you smile every day, every day is a good day. He said, yeah, yeah, it's a good day. And he told me about one night, he's a musician. And one of the things that he loved is his music and his drums. And he's an avid drummer. And, and he was telling me that he recently quit playing the drums. And I asked him why. And he looked toward his wife and she looked at him and he said, well, I'm, I'm too loud. And he and his wife share a home with a roommate who also lives in the basement apartment below them. So Selby told me about the night he was playing his drums really loud and quote, everything was shaken and the light on top of the ceiling, it fell right down. He said, so I, Kevin was working that night and Kevin is a support person. And Kevin came into my music room and said, Selby, you were playing the drums so hard and the light, it fell down, it broke. And I says to Kevin, I says, Kevin, am I in trouble? Kevin says, Selby, nope, accidents happen. So I quit playing. And at that point, I was just like laughing so hard. I was almost crying, uh, you know, and we had a really good laugh at that, which highlights, you know, life and people living their life and people being people. But it also highlighted another piece of the remnant of institutionalization, because after we finished laughing, I, I said, what do you want people to remember about you? And he said, I quote, I'm good, I'm not bad, you know? And so the support person coming into the room and saying the light fell from the ceiling and his immediate response is, am I in trouble? You know, it just points to, you know, like I said, the remnants of, of what, of the implications of being confined and, and having no say over that, you know? When we spoke last spring, you mentioned that the institutionalized, the institutions themselves might be gone, but the institutional thinking is still there. Um, how, how how do we see that playing out in how our how our society responds to people with disabilities? Yes, well, there's lots and lots of examples, but you know, part probably the most recent. Um, example would be the pandemic. You know, I think I mentioned to you that I was writing the final draft of this thesis as the pandemic was raging for the first time around. And I came across an opinion piece by CBC um, in April of 2020. It was written by a couple of professors, Roxanne McKidiak and Trudeau Lemons. And I'm sorry if I messed those names up, but they were commenting on how elderly people and people with a disability were really fearful that if they became ill with COVID, they would left, be left behind. And they worried, particularly people with a disability, worried that that disability might be used as grounds for prioritizing treatment. And also, you know, and that worry comes from people who may not use words to communicate and might require some accommodations and some people there to help them understand information so that they might be able to provide consent, right? Um, so there's a real worry there and a real fear. And also at the time of writing this paper, there was growing concern and controversy over Canada's Bill C-7. And that was the bill that would allow people wanting to die to receive medical assistance to do so, even if they were not yet deemed to be at the end of life. So regardless of where you fall on, on that type of a bill, it's not really my intention to focus on that, but more so to focus on the fear that intellect, uh, people with a disability have when this type of bill is brought forward because of the fear that it can reinforce or will reinforce existing stereotypes and stigma that still exists in our society today that suggests that it's better for people with a disability to be dead than to live with a disability. And in my research, I talk about um, activists. I mentioned activist and author Jenny Morris in her book, Pride Against Prejudice. And she argues that it's most of the time, it's typical doctors or, or, or judges, and I would add policymakers, who make decisions as to what makes a life worth living and not the people themselves that are actually living it, right? So, you know, we saw that come to, you know, play in the pandemic, that it, it raised those concerns 
very quickly. In my work, I see how difficult it is for you know, students to access the curriculum, how if they have an intellectual impairment or they may not um, speak with words, uh, but communicate in different ways, how very quickly there's a tendency to think that they are not comprehending and that they should be streamed towards a special ed program. And as soon as that happens, as soon as there's a moving away from where everybody else is and doing what everybody else is doing and learning what everybody else is doing, there's a loss of opportunities and there's a loss of the ability to build social capital. And, um, and there's a judgment that's been made, right, about a person. And, you know, really, who are we to make that judgment is what I think. Um, but, you know, I think the pandemic further provoked a really glaring, perhaps brutal light on some of our deep-seated beliefs that we continue to hold to be true about the place and the value of people who have a disability or are poor or are elderly, you know, and we saw that play out in real time on our TV screens as we watched what was happening in the long-term care homes, right? And so, you know, when we segregate and congregate groups of people, the loss of personhood and personal autonomy, it happens really quickly. People very quickly become patients or residents or inmates or bodies that need to be washed or mouths that need to be fed. And in doing so, even in spite of our best intentions, sometimes, you know, we strip people of their personhood. And, you know, I am always come back to what Gord Ferguson, um, a longtime People First member, survivor and self-advocate in his book, Never Going Back, wrote, when you put that many people together that the rest of the world does not value, you know bad things will happen. And I suppose some of that thinking then is, is um is evident behind some of the ideas um, that people advocate for in approaching the pandemic, that it's just people with disabilities getting it, that we should just let COVID, everybody get it, and the people who die, die. Mm. Well, and it also plays out for people who live in residential settings, who maybe have support through an organization or an agency. Um, and, you know, they're already limited into as to how often and, and when and how they get to access their community. So with COVID, those measures, uh, you know, and measures that are directed by the province at times become even more restrictive. So the isolation that we um, have complained about and found very difficult, and certainly it is concerning, um, the limitations that we felt on our ability to be able to access the things that we want to, when we want to, how we want to, whether it's going to the grocery store or seeing a movie or, or whatever, like those, you know, experiences that we as a general population are finding very difficult. Those are the, often the experiences that people with a disability and, and an impairment, uh, part of their daily life, you know. Mm -hmm. Having to keep themselves safe from from the virus, but then also being dependent on other people to determine um, what safety looks like. What for safety them. look like? What safety looks like? And and it goes back to what you know Jenny Morris is saying that oftentimes these decisions are made by people who are not the people themselves, right? And and even if the best intentions are at, are at play. Um, it's still often the case. I want to go back a little bit just um, and, and ask like where, when, when people historically began this movement towards institutionalization, um, you did mention that there was the idea that these, that people with disabilities, um, now was it just intellectual disabilities or did it include physical disabilities as well? For the institutionalized. Yeah, yeah, no, physical disabilities too. People that were considered to be undesirable. Yeah, so you mentioned that there there was um, it, it it was framed as they're dangerous to themselves, they're 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 dangerous to us. Was this institutionalization um, presented as a way, or has it been? And I'm sure it's changed throughout history. Presented as a way to help the the person with a disability, or to help 
their family or as a, like in terms of like cure or was it a kind of a way to, and I'm going to put this bluntly, to warehouse people out of sight? I think it was a combination of all of those things, depending on the circumstance and the family and the person that was involved. So, you know, I mentioned Peter Park as the uh, godfather of people first, and he was 19 when the decision was made um, in conversation with his family and a family friend and a family doctor that he should go to an institution to receive specialized treatment. At the time, they didn't know that he was suffering from epilepsy. Mm. So they, it was also presented to him that he could leave at any time. However, he knew very quickly, as soon as he entered the doors, that he didn't want to stay, that he wanted to go, but his ID was immediately taken from him. And his father, who was uh, a pharmacist, would provide him with information and they would correspond. And it became pretty clear um, that this probably was not a good place for him to be. And Peter definitely wanted out. And his family had to hire legal support and spent a lot of money to try and get him out of there. And that took years and years and years. And so just, you know, imagine that. Imagine the family understanding that, oh, my gosh, this was a big mistake. And now they can't get him out. Um, you know, another family uh, that I think about, um, I just want to read what she had to say about how, you know, her family struggled with this idea and this notion of what they should do. And we'll call her Elise. And she was 10 or 11 at the time. And she um, spoke about what that felt like when she was told that her brother was going to be sent away. And she said, so growing up with Simon as my brother, I could see how his life went and how my life went and how totally unfair that was. Because why? Why? People would say to me, well, it's obvious why. Well, no, it's not obvious why. We're brother and sister. Why did our lives diverge like that? That's just, no one will ever explain that to me properly in a way that will make sense in my head. And so what was really evident from talking with her about her family and, and from other family members and survivors is that families love their children dearly and either did not have the, obviously the supports that existed to be able to help them stay in the home. Um, families live far away. There could have been change in health. There could have been change in family dynamics where mom and dad were no longer together. Um, but you know, oftentimes this was a last resort or it was recommended by the doctors, you know. And so, you know, in looking at Elisa's story and Simon's story, again, um, she talks about her mom coming to her to try to explain to her why that decision was made. And she said her mom wasn't telling me that to blame me and she didn't want me to feel any blame. But she just said, I want you to know that it wasn't an easy decision. And that like imagine parents being told to make a choice between their two children that basically, that was basically what it was, you know, you have to sacrifice your son in order to help your daughter. And there weren't people around saying, no, that's false. So it, so un unless you had the means to hire the lawyer and the means to find your, <laughs> find your own support, then you really didn't have much of a practical choice. Well, I think that when when institutionalization is presented as the choice, you know, and that's widely endorsed and accepted, um, you feel that that is, that is what you, you know, kind of have to do in some cases. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, as I was talking about the, the uh, family who the baby was sent away from birth, I mean, her sister said, like, that's just what, that's just what happened. It was the 1950s. You wouldn't think necessarily to do anything different. It just, that was just kind of what happened in those kinds of situations. So what led to things changing? Well, in the 1930s, there were parents that were starting to um, be upset about the fact that their kids were not able to access education. And so parents started to rally around that piece of it around the education piece and start finding ways to provide education, parents grouping together, teaching their own or the, you know, groups of, 
of kids forming their own programs to teach their kids. So that was happening. In the 1950s, um, Canadian sociologist Irving Goffman, and he was one of the knowledge elite that I call them. So there was a group of academics who were really digging deeper into this idea of institutionalization. And he, and he had concerns about segregation and congregation and what that actually did to people who were forced to live in these institutions. So his work looked at stigma and how institutions simultaneously reflected and reinforced that stigma that was associated particularly with an intellectual impairment or mental health issues. And, you know, his work then looked at how that stigma, how that was transferred to the family you know, as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier, how people were worried that that impairment might be genetic, that it could be passed on, you know. Um, and so then also in the 1970s, uh, German-American psychologist Wolf Wolfensberger, and that's a name that'll stick with you for a while, uh, he was doing some work about stigma too, but placed that in the context of devaluation. So Wolf argued that we as people, we make instantaneous judgments when we meet each other for the first time. We all do it subconsciously, uh, consciously, negative, positive, doesn't matter. We just do it. And so when a person is seen in a negative way, perceived in a negative way over and over again, that person becomes devalued. And so they'll be treated as lesser beings and they'll be more likely to experience a poor quality of life. And if they're devalued to the point of being seen as subhuman or, or um, as a subhuman animal, that provides justification for institutionalization. Right. And so you've got this knowledge elite that are starting to communicate these ideas and they're they're challenging this notion that institutionalization is the solution. And that has a trickle down effect to um, the broader society. You've also got people first movement happening. And so you've got um, people who have lived experience some who have managed to somehow get out of the institution coming together and demanding that this be closed, right? And fighting for the people that are inside. And in Ontario, the People First chapter or the People First uh, provincial body was really passionate and, and they would do sit-ins at MPs' offices and demand that there be change, right? Another significant piece was the Pierre uh, Burton article that was written and he um, was a noted journalist and went with his friend um, to deliver his friend's son back to an institution after Christmas. And Pierre walked through the um, institution and saw the deplorable conditions, deplorable conditions, and he wrote about it. And so I think that was, was shocking for people. And, you know, this is all happening in the 1950s to 1970s. And a little bit prior to that, you've got World War II veterans coming back. Mm. And they're coming back with um, some real impairments and disabilities, right? And, um, and so here they are fighting for their own uh, right to be treated and to receive health care and the supports that they need for the injuries that they've received as a result of being a citizen and, and, and protecting the nation and going to war. And so they're seeing that there's there's a bit of a, a breakdown. There's a bit of a gap in this knowledge of what it means to be a citizen and then what happens if you're a citizen that comes back and you're not the same as you were when you went, you know. And so these kinds of um, thoughts are shifting people to think or challenging people to shift their thoughts about what do we do with people who we perceive that need support or treatment who, or who might be different. Um, and so those are some of the things that were happening, I think, on the ground that really started to, to move towards the deinstitutionalization process. And then, of course, as soon as there was more documentation about the abuse, we see that the class action suits start to percolate. Um, and of course, that was a big factor in, in closing them. When was the last institu institution closed? Do you have... 2009. So this is very recent history. This is 21st century yeah. history. Right. And there's still institutions, fairly large institutions that exist across Canada still. Mm. So it's an ongoing, yeah. it's an ongoing story. It's not, uh, it's not finished by any means. No, it's not over. And, you know, historically speaking, 
we don't have enough time yet to, to really look with enough of a vantage point to really see what, what, what we've participated in, what we've done, right? There needs to be some time for people to really process uh, what all of that meant. Now, I'm, I could potentially be stepping on a landmine with this question, but I'm, I'm curious. Um, so my, my understanding is that in, many, in, in some cases, people were moved from institutions into more of a group home setting. Um, are, are group homes the answer or are they a continuation of institutionalization? Mm. So you're definitely stepping in a landmine there. Oh, okay. Uh, so, but, but what I will say is... <laughs> that's my specialty. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, uh, so that's kind of the, the trajectory of how deinstitutionalization happened, right? So people are released uh, from the larger institutions. They're put into smaller institutions, smaller being maybe there's only a couple hundred people there instead of thousands. From there, they're moved to even smaller, maybe group homes, or they're located on a on a farm like setting, and there's less people. So the so the idea was to 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 decrease the number of people that were there, right? And so today, in this housing crisis climate that we are in, and with knowing that the weight of caring for and providing support and thinking about options and solutions falls largely on the family, it is a daunting process to figure all of this stuff out. And um, certainly we've come further in thinking about how to provide individualized solutions for people, whether that comes to housing and support. But as a society, do we welcome people in the workplace? Have we made space so that people don't have to leave our community and go to other types of communities or pseudo communities to be safe, to participate, to engage, to have the supports that they need? So we don't provide that as a society to people very well yet. Um, and so I think that the key is to think about, you know, what I said earlier about personhood, that it's very easy for people to become bodies, right? And so ideally, we would not want to see people necessarily in large uh, group homes. We would want to see and ensure that people... Um, their identity and their autonomy is protected and exercised and expressed. But it's very difficult because, you know, families don't have unlimited resources most of the time. And so the idea of coming together and building a building and or having a home and having their sons or daughters and live there and sharing some support and some resources, well, you know, that makes good sense in a lot of ways. And so it requires conversations like this and really deep-seated uh, reflection. <laughs> uh, try and figure out how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that protects people's personhood and their autonomy? And, you know, even if two people are sharing support and one person doesn't want to go to the mall, but they have to go because, you know, there's no one else to stay and maybe they need someone to be there. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a bit of a loss of a, of of autonomy and self-determination, right? So it's a very, very tricky thing to figure out. And, and it's complex. And I think it, it, you know, it really means that we've got to learn more about this history. We've got to, fi- to be aware of how we got to where we did, the thoughts and the notions, the ideologies that got us there, how they're still present in many ways, as we've discussed, to address them head on, to have people intentionally be supporters and champions of, of other people so that we create neighborhoods and communities where people can be safe to participate and engage and accept it as they are, understanding that, you know, we're all going to age if we're lucky and our bodies and our minds that we're not going to be functioning perhaps the way we wish, and the way we did, but yet certainly we still want to be seen for who we are you know, and who we were mm-hmm. and the contributions that we've made in our lives and the accomplishments and the things that are important to us, the things that we value. So that doesn't leave you with much of an answer, perhaps as far as clear-cut way forward. But I think the way forward is in these kinds of conversations and really getting honest about how we see people and why we do the things we do. Yeah. 
Um, I want to come back to education for a moment as well. Um, be, you mentioned um, people grouping together to provide education for their for their children. Um, was education provided within institutions, and how has how has the situation with education um, changed? Is there? I, I know education wasn't necessarily the focus of, of your research, but I would be really interested to hear your thoughts on, on um, education and, uh, and, and disability. Well, although it was part of the offering that there would be education, um, given the overcrowding, the lack of staff, the lack of trained staff, um, that education piece was I think a lot a hit and miss. It wasn't something that I looked at directly in my work, um, but certainly people came out of institutions not being able to read or write or having a, an awareness of of what was going on in the world around them, and certainly there was um, a lack of providing that um, to people. And. You know, today we talk a lot about inclusion, and I think that everyone has a different idea as to what that means. And maybe for some people, that means that, you know, it's a good thing that people who have a disability uh, can go to the same school as everybody else. And and so maybe that's inclusion to some people. Um, for others, that's maybe not not enough. And, and we might look towards more uh, terminology like equity that there has to be equity in education. And so is there equity when kids are put in a separate classroom because they're supposed to get specialized teaching and teachers who have been trained to teach um, them according to their, their strengths and their needs? And, you know, I have good friends who are teachers and one of my mentors in, in my community work and, and a dear friend of mine we would talk about these kinds of things and she would say, you know, it's really just good teaching practices, you know, good teaching practices work for everyone. And certainly Sheila Bennett, who is no stranger to the Brock community has done great research on what that means to have people, uh, students in class who have a disability with other kids who don't and the, the value that that brings to the classroom itself, um, to what we're learning about one another and how we interact with each other, the social capital that gets to be built and exchanged. And, and um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent in that kids need to learn. Everybody needs to learn. We're lifelong learners. Our bodies have memory. Our cells have memory. Um, and I think we have to be very, very careful in thinking about how we determine comprehension if someone comprehends something or doesn't. And, you know, especially as we get to high school, our education system is very streamlined, even for mainstream, you know, typical students. It's it's very streamlined and and it doesn't allow for a lot of exploration and 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 maybe doesn't allow teachers to be able to teach from a point of potential even at times. So my 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 go to is always you know, kids need to learn. All kids can learn. We learn our entire lives. We need to be in the classroom where their peers are. We need to have access to the to the curriculum just like anybody else does. And um, and I think the more that we do that, the better off we're all going to be. Mm-hmm. So we already touched on this in talking about for example, the pandemic and long-term care homes and that kind of thing. Um, where does your research go from here? How, how, how can we use this research, this better understanding um, that you're helping us develop about institutions and the fallout of institutionalization? How do we use that going forward? Well, as one who never really wanted to study policy, there's a lot of policy in there. Uh, so I think there's something to learn from that. Uh, there is some good policy that was attempted after the Williston report. Um, and, you know, a lot of that got tabled and it really revolved around seeing people lead typical lives and making sure they had the support to do it and families had the support to make that happen. 
Um, so I think there's things to be said about policy. I think there's things to be said about people who have a, a impairment or a disability being at the front and center of that policy making, so that typical people are not making those decisions when it comes to, you know, really implicating um, the implications of that and the effects that it has on people's lives. I mean, oftentimes, like I said, typical people are making all kinds of decisions that that dramatically affect the trajectory of a person's life who has a disability or an impairment. Um, I think there's things to take from it when we're thinking about, like you mentioned, education and building our community, what it means to be a citizen, who we give access to those privileges and, and, and the idea of a good life, that we all should have a good life and, and that no one should be exempt from that. I think what has impressed me further in my work is the importance of knowing others and being known by others. And that's of particular significance to a person with a, with an impairment. And so in my work, I really focus on building what I call and what we call circles of support or networks of support around people. And that's bringing together um, people like our friends, our friend group, but intentionally people who uh, have reciprocal relationships with the individual and who have a vested interest in, in seeing that that person lives the life they want to live, bringing them together a bit more formally in meetings, depending on how often the family wants to meet or the individual wants to meet, but having those meetings so that it places the individual front and center in directing their life, in sharing what their wishes and their goals are, and the members of the, the circle take their lead from, from that person as much as possible. And what's more important is that the people, the members of the network, know each other so that everybody's on the same page in understanding what this person wants to see happen in their life. You know, and and that also, you know, speaks to supported decision making that, you know, there's there's been a lot of um, trailblazers, Audrey Cole being the main one working in the province to try and um, let the government see that supported decision making is a good thing and it and it should be legally accepted. And, you know, and it, and it takes me back to my, my research, which was largely influenced by the work of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who insists that personal narratives, and we all have our own narrative of our life, everyone does, must encompass the person's whole life, making it clear that being known by others is an integral component of protecting one's humanness. So it's really things that we as individuals even can work on. Um, putting the work into making sure that we're recognizing people as as people, as as individuals. Yeah. So part of what I like to do on this podcast is to pull back the curtain a little bit on the research process or in this series, the, the grad student process. And um, I'm wondering if you could tell me more about this process of finding and interviewing um, people as part of your, as part of your sources, part of your research. Um, what are the steps and the thinking that's involved in that? Well, I really got to understand more about the ethics department at Rock and what that all means. Um, and, and that was really great to go through that ethics process because it really focuses you on what are you trying to do? <laughs> Why are you trying to do it? What do you think the outcomes are going to be? How do you mitigate any sort of negative impact this will have on a person who by just talking about their experience, it can be traumatic and, and revisiting that trauma. How are you going to mitigate that? Who's going to be a part of that? Why would that person be a part of that to mitigate that? Uh, you know, just ensuring that you're not doing harm to people by simply talking about these things and, and making sure that people give consent. So people who don't, use words that we're making sure that uh, we have their consent and it's okay from verbal, um, from gestures to even uh, facial expressions. Right. And, and that, that was part of why I invited supporters, family members to be part of that, of the interviews as well. So fortunate for me, I, I work in the disability sector in the last few years. So um, the community living well in Pelham director here was really integral in starting the recruitment process. So she had people that, you know, coordinators that worked with families and worked with individuals that already had a, a trusted uh, relationship, reach out and say, 
there's this research going on. This is what it talks about. Would you want to be a part of it? And of course, all this was approved by ethics. So how, what we were going to say in the phone script, what we were going to say on the consent forms, like all of this had to be pre-approved. And so we followed, we followed the script. Um, and, you know, I'm an advisor for the People First chapter here in Welland, so I'm fairly well known among some of the members and their families. So that, of course, made it easier. Um, but also there had to be um, real understanding that even if we had a, a relationship and if a personal relationship, they knew me, that there was no expectation that they had to continue with this. And if we got into it and they changed their mind, that was totally fine as well. So there was no expectation there. Um, and so I recorded the interviews and then um, really tried to write in plain language and really incorporate capture people's words on the paper and the text as they said it. Um, so that was important to me. And I provided the paper as afterwards to the, to the survivors as well. But I also provided a little bit of summary. So talking about parts of their conversation that really impacted me and where they were used and what page they were on and and if they wanted an audio recording of it, they could have that. And um, and so just being clear, being clear as to what we're trying to do and making sure that the participants really understand and understood the intent of the project and 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 the questions that we were going to ask and, and why we were asking those questions. So. So at first it was very overwhelming. And I remember uh, Dr. Salhaney um, feeling overwhelmed too, I think, because she doesn't really have to go through this process because she uh, said, you know, I just write about dead people and people have been dead for a really long time. But it made her think about the consent piece of it as well, that, you know, even if we're writing about people that have been dead for a really long time, at one point they were alive and they had family and, and would they want to be written about and would they want this piece of their life to be written about, you know? So it really gives you, really causes you to pause and reflect on what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and I think that's a really good thing. So I think to end the interview, I think it would be nice to end with one of those personal personal stories if you've got another one bookmarked and ready to share and I do direct our our listeners to check out the completed masterpiece um, available online as well for for more well I think that the shining uh, piece of this paper is people's stories right that's that's to me what it's what it's all about um, and so yes I have um, a piece of a conversation from one of uh, survivors, and we call her um, Lily. And at 17 years old, uh, she was already in foster care, so there'd been a disruption in the family. And she was then um, placed in uh, Oxford Regional Center at 17, actually. Uh, but she'd already experienced foster care from the time she was 13, and, and she talks about people being mean and um, things that happened that shouldn't happen, she said. And so she was really afraid when she ended up at Oxford. She didn't get to see her brothers, which was really important to her. But she said that she always had a dream of being free. And when I asked her what her purpose in life was, she said it was to help others. And so, you know, she really maintained that and hung on to that through those years. And even after she was released, found her brothers again and has a really close relationship with them. Um, and so when I asked her how her life was now, she responded, better than it was. She explained why and said, more support I ever had. People care when something goes wrong and what else? Trying to think. There's always somebody to help you through rough and bad times. So I asked her if there was anything she wanted to change in her life right now. And she said, nope. And I kind of found that hard to believe. And I said, are you sure? They're like, There's no goals or dreams that you'd like to see to do or see happen. And, and she responded, one dream to help others, which I'm doing now. That was one of the dreams come true. I don't really have another one. And she went on to talk about how being in, in an institution was like being stuck. And, and, you know, as she was talking about her life now, and then it was clear to the comparison, uh, it was a clear comparison of how much freedom and life she enjoys now. And when I asked her to think about a time where she was really happy, she said, when I turned 65, I had a big birthday. That was a happy memory. 
So we talked about that for a little while. And then near the end of the conversation, um, we talked again about how she never let go of her hope of being free, to which Lily responded, hope, look at me now. listening to forward find our footnotes links to more information transcripts and past episodes on our website rocku.ca humanities forward is hosted and produced by allison innes for the faculty of humanities at brock university sound assistance for this episode is provided by mitch kogan theme music is by khalid imam this podcast is financially supported by the faculty of humanities at brock university